Now, I would ask you to turn with me in your Bible, but I'm not entirely sure where I should tell you to go. Um, I'll probably read a lot of passages this morning, but to begin with, I will read an event found in the life of Christ. This is contained within Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And all four gospel writers, they all record this event, and they all four give unique details that I would, I would like you to hear as we begin. So rather than read one account, I'd like to read all four together. This is what we uh, sometimes refer to as a synthetic harmony of the gospels. Um, it combines every detail of every account into one narrative. So listen as I read. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. And it came to pass six days before the Passover... Jesus drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and came to Bethany at the Mount of Olives where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now skipping ahead just a bit. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her on which no one has sat. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there, the owners, said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. They brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on the colt. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Fear not, tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey." His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And a very great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. 
The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples who went before and those who followed began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now this event comes at the very end of Jesus' life and ministry. In less than a week, the Romans, at the request of Jewish leaders, of course, would crucify him. So he's making his final entry into the city of Jerusalem for his final Passover. Now, if nothing else, we see that Christ is a very polarizing figure by the end of his ministry. Arguably, he was always polarizing, but it it reaches a fever pitch during this last week. His raising of Lazarus from the dead was really the last straw for Jewish leaders. Here's what the Apostle John records in John chapter 11, following that particular miracle. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Jewish leaders determined enough was enough. Evidently, the raising of Lazarus was a miracle they couldn't ignore. They couldn't explain away so easily. Too many people had witnessed it. Too many people claimed to believe in Jesus because of it. The miracle was just too impressive for people to overlook or merely forget about. They decided something had to be done. Jesus must die. Jesus, however, he disappears for a while. He leaves Jerusalem and the surrounding region. Now, he wasn't scared of the Jewish leaders. He wasn't trying to Avoid his fate, if you will. In fact, if we go all the way back to Luke chapter 9, earlier in his ministry, we're told he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's a determination there. For much longer than his closest disciples realized, he had his mind fixed on the cross to come. He was determined to obey the Father's will, to save his people from their sins. But the time had not come. 
just yet. So he left the region. Now, meanwhile, anticipation is just rising among the people of Israel, especially those in and, in and around Jerusalem. Some were inclined to believe in him. Others were merely fascinated by him. Some, of course, hated him. Regardless, when the final Passover came and people flooded into Jerusalem from all over Israel and beyond, we see that a lot of people are talking about him. They're whispering in the streets. According to John 11, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're speculating. He wouldn't dare show his face in Jerusalem again, would he? Yes, he would, because he had already determined to set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was resolute, and nothing was going to stop him. Now, when Jesus finally arrives in the city, riding on a donkey, we see that the responses are drastically mixed. I mean, it's all across the board. Some people rush out to celebrate his entry as though they're paying homage to a new king. Unsurprisingly, the Pharisees are simply angry. They're frustrated. They're angry. The last thing they want to see is a crowd of people praising Jesus. As for the Lord's closest disciples, they're utterly confused by it all, at least for now. They don't understand what's happening. John says his disciples did not understand these things at first. It wouldn't be until much later. Now, how could everyone's reactions be so different from one another? Some express adoration. Others are venting their frustration. Some are completely dumbfounded. How could Jesus be this polarizing? Well, to answer that question, let's take a step back. Because this single event, with its, its various reactions, have a lot of years of context behind it. God gave His covenant people certain expectations throughout the Old Testament. Some were readily understood, others were not. So let's take just a moment and consider what kind of expectations God gave His people. Now, first of all, go with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he gives each of his 12 sons, the the 12 tribes of Israel, a blessing. And when he blesses Judah, the promise is quite stunning for several reasons. But here's what he says in verses 8 through 10, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, we may not readily understand everything contained in this blessing, Not at first anyway, but it's relatively clear that Judah's family, his family line would be one of 
strength, one of power, one of royalty. The other tribes would bow down to him in praise, kind of like they did Joseph. He would subdue his enemies. He would be like a lion crouching over his prey. The scepter, identifying him as king, that that decorative stick that kings would carry, would not depart from Judah. Now this is what we might call a plot twist as we're reading through Genesis. Because who would have thought Judah would receive this promise of power and royalty? After all, it's his brother Joseph. He's already a man of royalty, right? He's second in command over all of Egypt. And if anyone thought maybe this honor should have gone to, uh, to Jacob's firstborn, well, that's not Judah. Judah's the fourth son, not the first. Then again, God doesn't operate according to the wisdom of men, does he? He's proven that time and time again. In his wise providence, he chose Judah for this particular honor. Now, throughout the generations to come, not everyone agreed on how to interpret the details of Judah's blessing, which is even true today, but it seems almost everyone agreed on at least one thing. A king of kings would arise from Judah's tribe. A king above kings. He would be unlike every other king. He would be greater than every other king. Now, in hindsight, we know Jacob is pointing to the messianic king. He's pointing to Christ himself. Ultimately, he's talking about Jesus. But predictions in the Old Testament aren't clear revelations, right? Not to them, not at that time. In their book, Begg and Ferguson offer a helpful summary of the Bible, and perhaps you've heard this before. They say in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the letters, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. We, of course, have the advantage of reading the New Testament, where Jesus is revealed and he is preached and he is explained. But for those living under the Old Covenant, his identity, his purpose, many of these details, they're still veiled. They're still a bit of a mystery. Okay, a great king is coming, he'll emerge from the tribe of Judah. What else? Well, only later would God give additional pieces to the puzzle. So consider, for instance, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've recently heard an entire sermon series on this promise. King David, in 2 Samuel 7, he's enjoying relative peace, some prosperity, and he begins to think about the prospect of replacing the tabernacle, that old tent, with a more permanent structure for worship. After all, why should he dwell, why should God dwell in a tent while he has this this palace to live in? Well, setting aside David's plans to build the temple, here's what God promises in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from 
whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Matthew Henry says the establishing of his house, his throne, and his kingdom forever can be applied to no other than to Christ and his kingdom. You see, David's house and kingdom long since came to an end. And repeatedly, God promises forever, forever. Now again, we understand this in hindsight, but what did the people then, generations ago, grasp about it? Well, over the centuries following David's reign, Israel learned firsthand what happens when their king disobeys God, when he's an unrighteous king. It brings their nation to ruin. It brings judgment upon them. Yet they also knew God's promise to David that he would establish David's throne forever. A descendant of David must come and he must fulfill the conditions of the covenant that God made with him. He must sit on David's throne and rule forever. Obviously, a succession of imperfect, sinful kings, one after another, could not fulfill that promise. He said to be righteous. So a better one would have to come, right? God must raise up a righteous, obedient son of God to take the throne. Listen to this promise reiterated. In Psalm 89, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it will be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Now following David, the prophets continue to remind people of this promise in in many ways, different details. The Lord says through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37.23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols or their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, my subjects, if you will, and I will be their God. He then says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Perhaps more than anyone, Isaiah really perceived the glory of of David's son, identifying him even as God himself. He says, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So if nothing else, it was rather obvious that this promised king was not going to emerge from uh, Judah and David's uh, descendants naturally. It wasn't going to be quite that simple. It would require some divine intervention. He would be, this promised king would be God Himself. His name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now the Old Testament has much more to say about this coming king, but We've only got so much time. But I will read one more passage from Zechariah 9, which is very relevant to the the text I read in the beginning. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, of everything said about this king in the Old Testament, this particular detail is quite odd, isn't it? Probably easy to miss. More times than not, this king, he's lauded as a conquering hero. He's a lion. He defeats his enemies. He reigns supreme. Now, I'm not terribly surprised that most people in Israel thought about the promised king, and when they did, they imagined him not not as a man of humility emerging on the back of a donkey? Now keep that in mind as we move into the New Testament now. Now as you know, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah King. And He did so from His birth. Uh, He fulfilled them all, one after another. Yet John tells us in John 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. That's an awfully sad indictment. These are the very people who knew the prophecies. The scribes, the Pharisees in particular, they boasted about their vast and intimate knowledge of the Scriptures. Yet their opposition to Christ was nearly immediate. And it continued throughout His ministry and ultimately culminated in their cries for Him to be executed. This was the man for whom they had waited. This was their Messiah, their King, the Son of David. So why were they so quick to reject Him? Well, despite the prophecies, they took one look at Jesus and they said, this this can't be Him. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't speak like a king. He doesn't act like a king. What about the prophecies that depict Him as a, a lion and as a conquering warrior? No, this can't be Him. 
not Jesus of Nazareth. What good thing comes out of Nazareth? As for everyone else, the reactions are always mixed as we read throughout his, his life and ministry. Most people, it seems, were very fascinated by him at the very least. They're curious, they're fascinated. Uh, some believed in him, some half-heartedly believed in him. Nearly everyone was confused by him to some degree or another. Uh, everyone's understanding was limited, and that certainly includes even his apostles. When Jesus began his public ministry, he announced, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now notice that word kingdom. That's a popular word throughout the gospels. What does it imply? Well, if the kingdom is at hand, it implies the king is also at hand. You can't really have much of a kingdom without somebody to reign and rule over it. So Jesus was effectively announcing the arrival of this much-anticipated king prophesied over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Even so, not everyone's convinced. In John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds more than 5,000 people. So this massive audience, they saw his power. They saw it firsthand, and this light bulb comes on. Suddenly they thought, well, maybe this could be the son of David. Maybe, maybe he is the one who will reign on David's throne forever. You know, a man with the power to perform such miracles, well, he can probably do those other things the Old Testament talked about, right? He can subdue our enemies. He can restore sovereignty to the nation of Israel, right? He doesn't look like much, but look what he can do. He fed us all. John 6.15 says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What just happened? Wasn't this the moment Jesus was waiting for? They acknowledge him. They're receiving him as king. They want to take him by force to make him a king. That's how excited they were at the prospect. Israel wanted him to be their king, so why did he withdraw himself? What we find out as the chapter continues, what we discover is they wanted a king, but not the king. And there's a big difference, big, big difference. As Jesus preaches more of the truth about himself, he gets to the heart of who he really is, what he's really doing here. We're told many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The food was great. The power was great. The miracle was great. This talk of salvation, of the bread of life, not so sure about that. For a brief moment, they thought he met their, their very short-sighted expectations, but ultimately, they decided he wasn't the king after all. As for the Lord's true disciples, they stayed with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One, that consecrated One of God. Though they continued to faithfully follow Christ, we see their confusion time and time again. Uh, Consider their interaction with Jesus the night before His crucifixion in John chapter 14. It's almost comical. Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to Myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And here comes, here comes Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And here comes Philip. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I mean, these conversations were happening continually, and I suspect there were many more like them that were not recorded for us in the New Testament. So in short, the Jewish leaders, they adamantly deny Jesus is king. Most of the population is fascinated by him, but they don't believe he's king either. The disciples They know he's king, but they don't know how. They don't know why. They don't know what. There's a lot of details missing from their understanding. And we see all of these reactions come together when Jesus rides into the city on the back of a donkey. Now, it's fair to say the general consensus in Israel leaned away from Jesus being this promised king. We can hardly blame them, can we? I mean, What kind of king is laid in an animal trough at his birth? What kind of king grows up in a place like Nazareth? What kind of king rides into his capital city on the back of a donkey? Worst of all, what kind of king allows himself to be mocked, nailed to a cross, and crucified? kind of king is this? Well, the correct answer is the king of kings. The king of all kings, just as the prophecies said. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. Let me remind you of something the prophet Isaiah wrote about this anticipated king. This is from Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it was, in black and white. Jesus is not the king despite his suffering and his death. I would argue he is king because of his suffering and death in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Last week I said our greatest problem is the consequence of our sin. While the people of Israel waited for the Messiah to come and to conquer the Romans, that was an important aspect of what they believed he would do, they missed the fact that Jesus would conquer our greatest enemy of all, death. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Never mind the Romans. Forget about the Romans. Death is our greatest enemy. And Jesus defeated even death through his death and resurrection. Listen to Paul in Romans 6. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I like that passage. We are in Christ. As believers, we are in Christ. That's a phrase that Paul loves to use over and over again. We are in Christ. Therefore, we're united to Him, right? If we're united to Him, we are therefore cannot be separated from Him. We're bound to Him as one. Well, Christ, we're told, defeated death. He was raised again. Therefore, if we are united to Him, if we are in Him, we will also be raised again. Our greatest enemy is destroyed. Christ the King reigns supreme over our worst of enemies. All our enemies. As it happens, Jesus is a much greater King than most of Israel had anticipated. They didn't know the full extent of His power and His glory and His majesty. 
Now, you and I, we may relate to their desire to see someone you know, overthrow their political captors, but Jesus did so much more than that. You know, even if he had saved Israel from the Romans while he was here during his first advent, you know, they still would have been in bondage to an even greater enemy. Right? If not for Christ, death holds us all in its grip and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Only Christ the King, the King of kings, has the power to conquer death which He did through His own death and resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. David couldn't do that. Solomon couldn't do that. As impressive as their resumes were, as glorious as they appeared, the greatest kings on earth cannot save us from death and hell. They cannot save us from the wrath of God. Period. Now, in less than two years, we're going to elect another president here in the United States. I'm sorry I reminded you of that. Or maybe you're happy, but I don't know. You know, we've already entered into that political season when emotions seem to run a whole lot higher than they ordinarily do. You listen to some people talk about it, and the fate of the world hinges on the next man elected. If we don't elect the right man, you know, we're all doomed. Maybe we are, maybe we are, but let's not forget who's really in charge here. In Colossians 1, Paul says, For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Begg and Ferguson write, as Christians, we must learn to think properly, biblically. Then we may watch CNN or BBC News or read the New York Times or make our way through the Wall Street Journal without joining the ranks of the gloomy or singing in the choir of the fearful. To be in Christ is mind-stretching and life-transforming. It is a mind-altering experience to bow before the authority of what is said concerning the cosmic Christ who reigns over all. It changes our perspective on everything. And I believe they mean that. Everything. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This understanding should shape every last aspect of our worldview. It should affect us moment by moment every day of our lives. No matter who the nation elects as the next president, Christ is still the sovereign king over the entire universe. He holds this world in the palm of his hand. He holds the future in the palm of his hand. And ultimately, whatever transpires here on this earth, it is not going to ultimately matter because ultimately, whatever transpires here on earth doesn't compare with what the King of Kings accomplished through his death and his resurrection. If, we were to, if he were to let the world crumble all around us, if he were to let the United States of America just fall apart 
believers would still be safe in him. If he were to let our enemies come and take our very lives, despite the injustice of it all, we would still be safe in him. Why? Because he defeated even our worst of enemy, which is death itself. We don't have anything to fear. The King of Kings is on our side. The only appropriate responses then are to, number one, submit in obedience to our King. And number two, praise His wonderful name, which I trust we can spend the rest of the morning doing. Let us join the crowds in shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. By the way, that was the appropriate response. I don't know if everyone was sincere or understand, understood what they were shouting on that day, but that is the appropriate response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are immensely thankful as we watch the news and we see the current events and we uh, admittedly worry about the future. Especially those of us with kids, we're constantly worried about what kind of world they will uh, one day live in. But Lord, help us to trust in You as the Sovereign King to know that ultimately all things are in Your hand, that Christ reigns even now, and one day He will return and He will make all things new. Why? Because he has the power to do so. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He upholds all things by his power. Everything was created through him. Father, we thank you for this knowledge. We thank you for this king who would so humbly come to this earth doing seemingly odd and strange things like riding on the back of a donkey during what was a sort of coronation for him into the city of Jerusalem. We thank you for that humility, for that meekness, because otherwise, we could not be saved. If it weren't for Him, we would be destined for hell to face Your wrath forevermore. But He stood as a sinner all alone on our behalf. He died, but He also rose again, and He reigns by Your right hand. Lord, we thank You, and I trust that we can praise you this morning and every moment following throughout the entire week. What a good and wonderful king we have. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> We're dismissed.